When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, you know that, he, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a very large sum, and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a very good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Thanks, Nicole. So for you... Who, who embodies that like in charge but not controlling kind of person? Like who comes to mind when I say like who, who's that person? Maybe, maybe it's in parenting, maybe it's in coaching, maybe it's in leadership or at work. The kind of seasoned wisdom of the type of person who doesn't suffocate the room because they're controlling all the things but has this, uh, just creates this air of confidence. Like they're in charge. Uh, I was thinking about all that this week and there's this one, one guy that I got to know in the coaching world of baseball, mostly because I've coached his son, but he's like a second-generation coach, and most of his coaching has happened around uh, high school sports. And so most of the time, when, when I've been around him, like he's been the parent, I've, I've been one of the coaches, but there's been a couple occasions where I've got to coach with him. And in my opinion, he kind of in some ways has that just, he's in charge, uh, but he's not controlling. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a couple stories that came to mind. One was a couple years ago at the end of the season, it was late in the season. I think Justin was a part of this crew too. We kind of threw together a team to go do this wood bat tournament in Billings. And generally, those types of throw together kind of late in the season tournaments are poorly umped. And so you show up with low expectations. And in fact, our expectations were fulfilled or our lack thereof. And the first game, it was so bad that uh, I'm not the guy who has, who's in charge but not controlling. I'm just the controlling one. So I made myself look like a fool because I was so mad at the umpire the whole game. So the second game, uh, I just swung the other way and I was like, I'm not saying anything. And it was like first inning, there was this horrible call on a play at first base, but I'm not saying anything. And all of his coaches were like, yeah, what do you expect? And this guy who I'm referencing, the in charge but not controlling guy, before any of us could stop him, just left the dugout and went jogging across the field to the umpire behind first base which is kind of like a car wreck. Like, everybody shows up at the game hoping this will happen, but at the same time, they feel guilty that they're hoping this will happen, and the fans are excited, and we're expecting fireworks, and there's going to be this thing that happens, and of course, it all happened pretty quickly, and none of those things occurred. What happened was you saw a quick exchange, and then actually, like, laughter, and then he just came jogging back across the field. And he got in the dugout, and we're like, what just happened out there? It was a horrible call. What just happened? And he said, well, I just went up to him, and I said, uh, why don't you tell me what you think you saw and I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> and, and the ump laughed because what are you going to do with that, right? Like here you have this thing. And then I think it was last year, I wasn't at this one, but he told me this story, but this is this, when, in this sense, he's in charge. Uh, there was a, 
no, it was two summers ago because it was COVID and it was in that early part of baseball season and it was the only live sport in the whole world. Like, remember there was a point where Legion Baseball in Montana was the only high school sport happening anywhere. <clears throat> and so there was this game early in the year, excuse me, <clears throat> and fans were pent up with energy and excitement and enthusiasm and the, the, the crowds were full. It was in Helena. There was this game and there was this horrible call early in the game. And again, fans are mad and they're yelling and and so my this, the same friend left the dugout ran out to the umpire and again they're excited because they weren't at the last time this happened they didn't know his mo and they're expecting fireworks and this time there were fireworks like he got out there and there was yelling and screaming and then all of a sudden he came back to the dugout and later he told me the story that what happened i'm sure he was exaggerating some but even if it's only slightly true it was hilarious what happened was he got out to the umpire and the umpire said that was the right call what are you doing here and he said, well, I'm here to entertain the people. So how about I yell at you a little bit, and then you yell at me a little bit, and then I'll go back to the dugout, and they'll all be entertained. And that's what they did. So, so who is, like, maybe as a parent, who is that parent? Like, you watch them parent, and you see they, like, thread the needle of not controlling, but also involved. Uh, my wife and I got to go to Sacramento. It's been over a month now to hang out with my friend Brian, who... Used to lead a church in Bozeman that helped plant this church. I went to seminary with Brian. We've been friends for a long time. And it's the type of friendship where it's more a credit to him than to me in terms of just staying connected. Uh, we went out to Sacramento just for two days. He's now a campus guy at this behemoth church. But for me, the, uh, the life of that experience was in watching him parent. Uh, I think, we, Teresa and I were counting the other night, I think their family is 13. He has three that don't live in the house, his oldest biological daughter, and then, no, four that don't live in the house, his oldest biological daughter, and then three adopted Ethiopian kids that are now adults, but living in his house with him still. So he's, he's the lead pastor of a church that was 20,000 people before COVID. He's the lead pastor of two of those campuses. And then his wife is an exec for this uh, dermatology, plastic surgery company. She's on the road like 50% of the year. But living in his house still, he, he has two his, he has twin boys, they're biological children of his, they're seniors, and then he's got a biological uh, daughter who's a sophomore living in the house, and then there's two girls that they adopted when they were kids from the Congo who were freshmen, and then there's two more girls who they adopted from the Congo who were in middle school, all living in, in, under his roof, and watching him parent was one of the most cathartic things for me I've done in a while. Because Brian embodies that kind of parenting where it's clear, like, he's in charge, there are boundaries, but he's not controlling. He doesn't micromanage the every little detail. Who is that for you? Uh, I think if you ever watch Hannah lead something like Ales for Trails, this is part of what makes her such a great leader. Like, if you've ever volunteered at Ales, especially hours before anybody else get there, gets there, the, the awesome thing about the way she leads that is there, she has a plan. She's in charge, but she doesn't run around all morning slapping hands when people make a decision that was different than the one she wanted. Who's that for you? Like, who's the parent? Who's the boss? Who, who's the leader? And, and if you're like, that's the furthest thing from me, like, the great news is, as best I can tell, you don't leave the shoot with those kind of skills. Like, you, 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 you learn those. You're, maybe you're a classroom teacher. My guess would be that there's a tendency in the early years to, to, to not be in charge, but to be controlling. So who's the teacher that you look up to now? Maybe it is you at this point who just embodies that, that precise kind of detail. 
I ask those questions because I think that's what's going on in Matthew 26. It seems to me that what Matthew, and, and, and to a greater extent Jesus, is trying to convey is this very audacious, somewhat mysterious, sometimes frustrating, but also equally is encouraging idea that this God that Jesus claims to be, his Father, is in fact in charge, but that shouldn't be confused for his being controlling over every little detail. I think that's what's going on. And if you're going like, wait a minute, how are we in Matthew 26? Like, I don't think I missed that many Sundays. We've been in this series uh, from Matthew all the way back since the Sunday after last Easter. We've been plowing our way through Matthew, but what we did just this morning, what we're gonna do now for the rest of Lent is we, we skipped from when Lexi spoke, which was awesome, so proud of how organized and prepared she was in Matthew 17. Now we're gonna fast forward to Matthew 26, and what we're gonna do now through Easter is, is walk through Jesus, just the, uh, what's often called the Passion Week, but just his final few days. And then, if that's not confusing, after Easter, we're gonna come back to Matthew 17, and we're gonna plow back up through Matthew 25, and I think we'll wrap up in August. But here's what I think is going on in Matthew 26, is before we get into all the detail and all the blood and all the gore and all the pain and all the suffering and and, and all the ontological things that are occurring, all the transactions between creation and God, before we get into any of the mayhem, the betrayal of the disciples, the disappointment, the pain, the suffering, the cross, the tomb, before we get into any of that, what I want to submit to you is this Matthew starts it by going, okay, before we move down this turnpike of just chaos and activity, let's just make clear, God's in charge. At the end of the day, he is in fact in charge. So let's just look back at 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So question, when does Jesus claim he's going to die? Like, what's the timeline for Jesus' death? What is, what is Jesus saying is the timeline for his death? Two days. Okay, let's just take that and put it on a shelf because we're going to come back to that. Before we do that, I think there's another kind of overarching meta question that we need to ask. And it's this question of, to what extent is what's about to happen? To, to what extent is Jesus a victim of those circumstances? And to what extent is he a willing participant in them? Ever thought of that? I think for me professionally, one of my greatest regrets as a leader and a pastor and a friend takes me back five or six years ago when a friend who moved here to help us start this thing, uh, he, I, I still remember, I remember we were walking right in front of the, the graphics, what is that, Alpha Graphics? No, that's in Billings, the, whatever, where, where Jake works, downtown. And he said, Adam, uh, I'm out, Allegra. He said, I'm out. I said, what do, you, what do you mean you're out? He said, I can't do it anymore. Can't do what? I, I can't believe in a God who has to murder his son in order to give me forgiveness. Like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And when I look back on that, where I failed my friend, I think, and let's be clear, I don't think that was the only issue going on for him. But here's where I think I failed him, just in that moment. I think I failed by failing to ask him the question, like, hold on. Before we plow forward into this Please, please, let's ask this question. Did Jesus willfully do this, or was he a victim of it? And I think that's a really important question, and it also seems like something Matthew's getting into. Uh, over the Christmas break, uh, I spent my Christmas money on a, on a Russian Orthodox crucifix tattoo that's on my forearm here. 
Uh, Justin ribs me every week. So when are you wearing a short sleeve shirt? When are you wearing a short sleeve shirt? And I keep saying, never. I'm, I'm never wearing a short sleeve shirt ever again. And then what happened was there's this thing in Ukraine that started to happen. And to be honest with you, there's, I started to go like, wait a minute, did I just put a swastika on my arm? Like, it's, it's a weird time to have a Russian crucifix on your arm. And so that, I started researching that, and actually a, a friend of mine was the first one to point out, and I've since learned more about this, that, that the Russian Orthodox Church is also the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is actually the biggest version of Eastern Orthodoxy in the world. Since then I've learned that actually part of the internal conflict between Russia and Ukraine is they argue about who got Orthodoxy first. And it seems like the, the general online consensus is actually started in what is modern-day Ukraine. But there's, of course, more to that. And again, I'm wrestling with, like, what, 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 what is this? Because I know why I got this, and I've got the 30-second and the two-minute and the two-hour answer, and that's a completely different conversation for a different day. But what's going on here? Then I was talking to my friend Father Moses, and he said, Adam, the day the Bolshevik Revolution began in Russia, 25,000 Orthodox priests were killed on the first day. And if you know anything about orthodoxy, their priests wear these gold crucifixes around their neck. And he said to add insult to injury, that metal was melted down for bullets. Then this week, because I'm still kind of doing this internal work of like, oh man, I'm trying to understand this thing. This week I was listening uh, to a homily from an Eastern Orthodox priest in the UK. And he, he said this, he said, uh, in the 20th century in Russia, there were more Orthodox people martyred just it, it, during the USSR's reign from, from Lenin to Stalin in that era, there were more Orthodox people martyred than, all, than Christians in the entire world for the first three centuries. And actually what he was talking about was like we, we have this strong heritage of standing up to unjust just power. It pacified my, my concern. Actually, it didn't pacify it. I think it answered it. But I tell that story to ask this one. Which of those people martyred in Russia, like, which of them went willingly and which of them went kicking and screaming? Of course, we, we don't know the answer to that question. But I do think it's valuable to distinguish that to whatever extent some of them went kicking and screaming and would have done anything to, to not be killed, that makes them different than Jesus. Because what Matthew seems to be clearly saying here, and gospel writer John does the same thing in his book, is first and foremost, as we kind of dive into the justice of God in the midst of the crucifixion and what happened in this transaction and why did God need this, all things that we're going to get into next week as we look at the Lord's Supper, or, or, or final, their final Passover together, one thing seems to be vitally important, and that is Jesus wants everyone to know, I'm not a victim of this. This wasn't thrust upon me from outside. If, you want, if I wanted to call down legions from heaven, I could have done that. This is my doing. And I just think as we wrestle in our current kind of cultural moment and there's all these conversations of Christian deconstruction and the extent to which the gospel's even just, to me one of the important pieces of the puzzle is Jesus did it willingly. Why? Well, we'll explore some of that more next week. But now what I want to do is grab this box back and go, okay, so Jesus said he's going to die in two days, right? Watch the way the story keeps going. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
Now, there's a whole thing that we could do here that I'm, there's other layers to this section that I'm not getting into, one of which is the contrast between where did Jesus' enemies, th- those who arranged for his murder, like where, where do they, where, what do they do? Where do they hang out? What kind of power do they have? What kind of luxury do they sit in? And simultaneously, you, you may have noticed, Jesus is actually in, in Simon the leper's house being served by an anom- anonymous woman. So contrast is, is trying to build. But here's the point that I think Matthew really wants to get into as we move into Passion Week. Look at verse five. But they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. It's subtle. I think it's the type of thing that you only get if you read it over and over and over and spend a lifetime reading scripture. But do you see what just happened there? Jesus goes, hey, in two days... I'm gonna get arrested and killed. And those who are arranging for his death, who it would seem are in perfect control of killing Jesus, what's their will in this situation? What's their plan? Not during the festival. In other words, not in two days. We're gonna let this thing get past us and then it's gonna happen. And I guess my question to you is, what if what Matthew's trying to give us here, and remember, he's writing to an early church who faced persecution real time, What if what he's trying to give to them and to us in in 2022 is this kind of almost stick it to the man kind of observation? Where first and foremost, here's what he wants you to know. Here's what they wanted to do and here's what God's doing. And what if part of this is in the same way you, you know the difference between the boss who's controlling and the boss who's in charge? You know the difference between you as a parent in the early years when it was controlling and you as a parent in your later years when it was about being in charge. What what if part of what Matthew is trying to convey to us is, hey, hey, some stuff's gonna happen. We could nuance the extent to which it's even God's will and, and, and how free will plays in, but just know, like, God's in charge. I mean, there's this big question in the history of theology, and that is, does God control everything? I personally, it just doesn't land for me. Go all the way back to Genesis 1, and you start to me see instances of God giving us a certain permission that allows us to stray outside of his quote-unquote plan. I don't buy into the idea that, that, that I had a soulmate, though I'm thrilled that Teresa and I are married, and I think that's fantastic. I don't buy into the idea that I was called to occupational ministry, though I'm thrilled that I get to do this, and I love it. I'm not convinced that God controls the specificity on those levels. But what if part of becoming an emotionally healthy spiritual person is also having the ability to go, but God, God is in charge. And especially, and I think this is the bigger emphasis, especially for the servants of the Most High. Like what if that's the promise? Doesn't mean we won't suffer. Didn't mean that for Jesus. Doesn't mean there won't be disappointment and betrayal and pain and hurt. Doesn't mean we'll die old. Didn't for Jesus. But for the servant of the Most High, what if spiritual health is by definition returning to, returning to, returning to? Like the Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. And what's the next refrain? He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. But what about darkness? Even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because it won't ever happen? No, because he's with me. His rod and his staff 
comfort me? What about when someone has it out for me? What about enemies? What about other sources of evil? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. And what's the refrain of Psalm 23? Surely his goodness and mercy is with me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. What if as we move into passion, part of the great audacious claim being made is this is God's world, and whatever kingdom we're staring at, whatever political things we're looking at, they're penultimate, because this is God's world, and God's in charge. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what, it, it, see, what if the struggle of the Jesus way of life is, is not the knowing, but the remembering, the returning to? We explored even the rosary last week and like kind of this background liturgical prayer type of ideas, and that was so much of that. It's not like we need to learn new things all the time, is it? It's the being reminded of things. Or even think of, go to that, head to that next slide, Holly. Think, think of this statement Jesus made in John. He says, in the world you face persecution, but take courage, I've conquered the world. What if God's in charge? You know, several years ago, it's probably been six or seven years ago, when we were experiencing the, our, our first kind of big growth as a church together, uh, one of the things that we realized, you can go ahead to that next slide, Holly, is one of the things that we realized was, man, we're kind of running out of space. And, you know, we all kind of know the, the play card that generally happens with growing churches. Is you go do a capital campaign, you build a campus, and you do all that. And we just, uh, not because it was a moral thing, we just didn't want to do that. We really believed in being a part of public space and community space and our rents going and getting invested into that. We really believed the value of being a portable church. There were these certain values. Uh, we love being a part of Grand Street. And yet still there was this like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, at the time, uh, one of the options we considered was uh, something within the school district. And I actually had a, a meeting at, at Hub Coffee with the then superintendent of Helena Schools, and I pitched the idea to him of our renting the HS, HMS auditorium to, to move our gatherings into there and then using the gym for kids. And it was a, it was a really exciting, fun conversation. Uh, there, there's certain rent agreements they have in the district's policies that don't allow 501c3s to pay at the same level, but we'd kind of figured out like, well, we'll just kind of pay the same thing, but we'll put it in this account, and we'd figured out that kind of roughly on, you know, a napkin with a, with a pencil that in the first few years we could probably replace every seat in that place with modern theater seating, and we would be a part of investing in this space, and we were both excited. And it was a meeting that left with one of those like, well, let me go kind of bounce this off the right couple people, and I got a couple of T's to cross and I's to dot, but let's get back together in a few weeks and we'll finalize this plan. And I'll never forget, we sat down at what was then Riley's, if you remember Riley's restaurant. We sat down three weeks later, and I'll, just, I'll never forget his words. He said, Adam, I can't say yes to this and keep my job. And I was so mad, and I've, I've told this story at times in healthy and other times unhealthy ways. It was just such a frustrating thing to me of uh, how, how the politics of all that played itself out. And then this last year happened. The last two years happened. And can you imagine if we were a church that met in a public school during COVID? Like, we, we might be done. Like, it might be over, because it, it doesn't take any creativity to go, like, you wouldn't have been meeting in HMS Auditorium. You might have not, not even gotten a parking lot. And that's not a criticism. I'm just saying, like, that's the world. I was thinking about that this week, and I was like, what, what if that is this? That we, we work our dogs off. We pray like everything's up to us. 
or we work as though everything's up to us, excuse me, and we pray like everything's up to God, the old cliche. And we trust God's in charge. God, God's in charge of all this. So much so that we were reflecting on that this week as a council and it just occurred to us that Grand Street has so allowed us to call our own shots for the last two years. At times, uh, even, even the way we were approaching things was different than the way they were within their own organization and it just caused us to reflect on like, wow, Grand Street's been so kind and gracious to us and so just wanted you to know that the council made the decision this week to, to cut them a $10,000 check just as a thank you from our reserves. They're trying to do a big HVA uh, update. They haven't increased our rent in a while, and they're just like, let's just give them this chunk of money as a thank you for, like, thanks for letting us. There was a season, you guys, where Grand Street's own staff wasn't coming into this place, but because of the media provision of, of the local COVID laws, we were, they were allowing us to come in here and film. But what if, what if that's just this kind of my, an example of A God who says that Jesus' way is this threading this needle of a God who's in charge. Doesn't mean you'll never suffer. Doesn't mean there won't be tragedy, but a God who's in charge. And I guess here's the question that I wanted to ask you this morning. There's two of them. In what way for you might it just be helpful in this season to be reminded God's in charge? It doesn't mean it'll be easy. In this world, you'll face intense persecution, but God's in charge. In what way might that be a helpful reminder to you in whatever it is you're navigating relationally or professionally or emotionally? Maybe you're looking at the geopolitics of this moment or the economy. There's so many things for which you could freak out because it seems like nothing good is in charge. In what way might it be healthy for you to go like, oh no, this Easter, Lent, fasting, so many of the things we're trying to lean into is just to create some extra space to choose to live and believe inside of this idea that God's in charge. And and maybe for you, uh, maybe it's not just a reminder, maybe it's an invitation I mean, this, this, this is the Jesus-centered life. This is repentance. This is what happens. Is maybe for you, you've never even considered. Like, what would it be like to live as though God is good and can be trusted and therefore to live as though he's in charge? That, that, that's the baptism moment. That's, the, that, that's, that's the, the moment of transformation. That's the moment of conversion. It's this trusting this is God's world, that we live, as Dallas Willard says, in a God-bathed world. So as the band comes back up here, uh, we're gonna give you some space uh, to, to reflect on all this and to do some internal work. Uh, there'll also be communion elements over here. If you've never taken communion with us before, uh, you don't have to. They're also not gonna ID you. We're, it's on your honor. Like if you're trying to live the Jesus life and, and believing in him and following him and the tomb is empty and the resurrection's the hope of the world, then, then please, by all means, uh, but maybe before we start to sing, I, I thought let's just, let's just move into that time by, by saying the Lord's uh, Prayer together. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.